0: Turn with me, if you would please to go to... I just lost my glasses. You got my glasses there? That's an ominous start. There you go. Thank you. What do we know of holy? Thank you, Mickey, for that. It really fits very well into the sermon today in relationship to the context of the text. That we are just little blips on the screen of human history is an understatement. I would like you to enter into the history of the day of Nehemiah as we read it. Picture yourself as one who is in this setting of, well... A city that has fallen and leveled to the ground. And as we read it, let us rediscover God. Let us rediscover the means to which God gave the church to know Him, even in the midst of great trial. Nehemiah 8. Let us start. Excuse me for skipping over parts of verse 4. One of the worst things a preacher and a pastor can do is pick a sermon with too many names that he cannot pronounce. So I'm going to read the first verse of verse 4. And I don't get out of trouble completely because of verse 7, but I just don't want to do all those names. So in verse 4 it says, And Ezra, in Nehemiah 8, The scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And Ezra opened the book, verse 5. And in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. While lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Shabaiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatii, Josephud, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, "This day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people who were weeping when they had heard these words of the law, then he said to them, "Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, to celebrate a great festival. Because they understood the words which they had been made known to them. Permit me to just give you a couple paragraphs of introduction with the deep history that precedes this moment in which Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In 538 BC, Cyrus, king of Persia, issues a decree that up to 50,000 Jews would be, over time, be allowed to repatriate Jerusalem. That would include the time of Nehemiah as well. Cyrus would both give supplies and protection for the Jews who chose to follow men like Zerubbabel, Joshua, Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra. The book of Ezra covers the time period from the Jews' arrival to the completion of the temple in 515 BC. The book of Nehemiah, is the book that is also included with Ezra and also 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So if you were to read an old Hebrew Bible, they might have those books together. It records for us Nehemiah's response to the report from some Jews who had just recently come back from Jerusalem. They said to Nehemiah himself, The remnant who survive the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates are burned with fire. A corollary passage I would like to quote to you is Psalm 11.3. When the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? The history of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are literally the response of what the righteous will do when the sovereign hand of God acts. And yet, we ourselves also, as the righteous of God, who have the righteousness of Christ within us, have to even ask our own selves, have the foundations of the church broken down. Well, the degree to this brokenness in Nehemiah's day, we can just simply read historians like Josephus. He says the king of Babylon erected towers upon the great banks of the earth from, from them in terms of as they surrounded Jerusalem and repelled those who stood upon the walls. The siege endured for 18 months. Until the city was conquered through famine. Jeremiah had written about this day. This day when the Babylonians had defeated the Assyrians. And they now were called by God. Our very same sovereign God. Who sent his only begotten son to save. He now sends a pagan king to destroy. His own people. His own covenant people. Jeremiah said that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, will utterly destroy them and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. And as we know, historically, that all came true. Jeremiah also said, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness. So when you consider at the very beginning of the Babylonian captivity, the articles of the temple were removed, the city was burnt, the gates broken down, the walls destroyed, a people in despair, the majority are are sent 500 miles or more away to Babylon, a few Jews remain, and there's no joy in the camp. We must separate ourselves from the scene we see in Jerusalem today. It is not a whole bunch of homes that are wisely and, and beautifully constructed. If you were to go to the wall that is still the remnant, people put slips of paper of prayers in between those stones in a very clean, uh, well-swept area. A tourist attraction, you could say. But we're talking about a city that Josephus says was completely leveled. Where the joy of the people's voices was destroyed. And yet, God moves within human history. As we pray even in our own day and age, do we not? Where the foundations of not only America, but Western society have fallen down. And we pray... Just as Jeremiah, as Ezra and Jer- and Ezra and Nehemiah did, in their fastings and their prayer, Lord, restore your people, recover us. How could there be joy in such surroundings? To bring it a little bit more closer to home, picture yourself in Berlin at the very end of World War II. Picture a lone Lutheran church standing in the middle of the city of broken down buildings. You would still see the despair of the people. We can't believe that this has happened to our nation. And then you are called to go to Germany and to restore that broken city. This is the charge and the call of both Ezra and of Nehemiah. Ezra was called to rebuild the temple. And God would do it, not first by calling Ezra, by giving the heart, uh, a heart of stone that now became for a moment a heart of flesh in King Cyrus, the Persian. And allowing Ezra to go back to rebuild the temple. And for Nehemiah, he, he himself, As the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, when you read those two books, you must follow through on the changing of kings. Artaxerxes sees this solemn man who he sees every day. And he says, what's wrong? And Nehemiah speaks of this report, of this great reproach that God has sent towards the people of Jerusalem still left. And the, the toll that has been taking upon 70 years of captivity with the people of God. And their desire, this bubbling up desire within the nation to want to go back. You see, Jerusalem was just a symbol. I should say not just a symbol. It was also the very protection of the very presence of God that now, of course, had left. The, the prophets had prophesied that the glory of the Lord would lead the temple and that happened and yet this hope, this fate, ingrained in God's covenant people, where the Spirit of God moves in human history, in the, those who do not believe and those who do, God moved the hearts to come back to God, to rediscover Him. We must ask the question, how could 70 years of captivity and rejection of God lead to now a love to God. A desire to want to build that temple. A desire to want to go back to a rubble, a city of rubble, to risk your life amongst the nations and to build. I could ask the same question probably to many of you here. How could a church, a Christian Feeling the pain of a church split. Almost the destruction of the very place, say, you even grew up in church and were saved. How? How could you rediscover God and go back to church? In your mind, it's just a place of rubble, of division, of hurt and pain, of alienation from God. Maybe you just never forgave God. Surely, these are some of the thoughts some of the Jews had. They had 70 years to think about it. In fact, so many Jews actually became so comfortable and prosperous within Babylon, most did not return. But some did. 50,000 did. We don't have walled or walls around the church. As Jerusalem had walls around the city that protected the temple and the homes within it. But we do have spiritual walls in the church and for the church. The first one that came to my mind that had been broken down as much as any more than the bombardment of those Babylonian missiles, you could say. Those engines of war did. Our walls have been broken down more by relativism, liberalism, false doctrine, immorality. We have seen such a change within the church, it's even entered into the evangelical church. Some of the doctrines that have come out, open theism, counterproductive to the history of the church and the history of Israel. God wakes up in the morning, he doesn't know what's going to happen, that theology teaches us. So much for a sovereign God who is holy, holy, holy. What other wall around the church has collapsed through the bombardment of the nations? How about the family? Ooh, we used to call the family just family. And now in this modern age, we have to distinguish between the traditional family and the modern family. I had a woman in an airplane one time get very upset with me when I was witnessing the gospel using the TV show Modern Family to be a segue to preaching the gospel to his heart. The world loves their modern family and they don't want to hear anything about the traditional family. It is, and I have heard both Conservatives and liberals say this. These are the morals and the family values that are the nostalgic values of the past. Quote, unquote. When George Bush Sr. died, I remember hearing Nora O'Donnell on Channel 3 and CBS. She said, weren't those values nostalgic? God help us. When we think of morality as nostalgic, rather than the very laws of God and the will of God in his creation's life. Another wall that has collapsed within our society is education. Instead of being a place of higher learning, it is now just cultural re-education centers. That's all it is. Now, I'm not saying there isn't some learning going on, but at the end of the day, they want your child to more... They want to know how your child feels and how your child relates and is inclusive with society. Forget about classical education, right? Well, maybe you are a... Victim of the casualty and a casualty of these wars, these culture wars. It's on the news every night. Maybe you surrendered to some of these pressures and are even willing or thinking about raising a white flag.
1: Many have already done that.
0: We've seen within our history, for instance, if you've lived as long as I have now, I've turned 60 years old, and I guess I now have decades to remember back to. I remember in the 1970s, they made no fault divorce as if there can be a divorce with no fault. Doesn't make any sense, right? But that's the way the culture has gone since the 1960s. We haven't made a lot of sense since then. But maybe you got one of those divorces as a Christian. It wasn't your fault that the word of God had no impact upon your life. And you didn't see that what God hath created, let no man put asunder, and you put it asunder. And I'm not using this as a guilt trip. I'm saying this in relationship to how the change, not only of Western society, but the world as a whole has changed and how the foundations have crumbled. Maybe you're a young person who, here who wants to date an unsaved believer. Or maybe you're a married person who's married an unsaved believer. It's more convenient sometimes. Massachusetts just changed the law to smoking pot for recreational purposes, right? Am I correct there? Just because a law changes, that does not necessarily mean that the Christian is allowed to partake. Here's the thing. If you have not been directly affected by the culture and by this moral relativism of the day, then you are at least in the same camp as Nehemiah. You have heard others from this church, as Nehemiah heard from the city of Jerusalem. And they have said to you, the walls have been broken down and many Christians are in great distress and reproach. And I can't say, and I love Mickey's song because it talked about the loss and the trouble that comes. And yet we are recovered when we come back to God and rediscover him. We are not that different from Nehemiah's day. Think of it in this one sense. I I, I actually went to a conference once uh, and uh, the speaker was a theologian from California and he uh, was asked the question, he says, aren't you worried about the Muslim impact upon Western civilization? And his uh, response surprised me, but it made sense. He says, I'm not worried about it at all. He said, if you look at human history, he says, basically human history starts with paganism. And then you have Christ and then you will see paganism return. And all we are is salt and light within the world. Because that's the way of the world. You see, in the day of Nehemiah, all Israel was, was a city surrounded by paganism. In America today, the church is a city now being surrounded by paganism. That's where we're headed. I... I'm surprised I even used that word and that phrase, only from this standpoint. We have changed so quickly that it's been like at the speed of light. To use the word paganism in this day and age, when just 30 years ago the percentage of people who were against homosexual marriage was over 65%, now we're talking about the world being overall... in. Paganistic and hedonistic. It's changing that fast. It does seem that God has no control. Doesn't it? But we also recognize Him as holy. And holy. That means His divine patience is measured to the exact amount in relationship to when He will act within human history according to His decree. And we must wait. And we must remember that God's love endures forever. And at any moment of time to which you are in despair with this cultural age, we must recover that God is still in control. Hebrews 2.8 says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under His feet, That's the ascended Christ. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not see all things yet subjected to him. The experience of a world that seems to be in control is not the reality of the truth that Jesus sits on the throne. Can I get an amen to that? So therefore, we have to learn from Nehemiah in chapter 8 and learn from the Jews, who, by the way, their circumstances did not change much. This moment of celebration, of rediscovering the festivals that the law of Moses proclaimed. And by the way, Nehemiah says, don't worry about the past when you didn't obey these festivals, these required festivals. He says, rejoice now and partake of them. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. What caused this celebration in joy is the application of the sermon. How can you go back to a church that is an empty shell like the city of Jerusalem itself? All it had when they returned was a temple, a wall that was broken down, and gates that weren't even hung on the hinges. By the time Nehemiah got done in chapter 8, the doors were on the hinges, the burnt doors were on the hinges. The city was still a city of rubble, but the walls had been rebuilt, and the temple was there with the altar sacrifice, in the front of it. That's it, though. Nehemiah even makes a comment, there weren't many homes in the city. It was desolate. Just like an Irish castle, in Ireland. You go over into Europe, you'll see castles everywhere. Sometimes the castles have, and most of them have walls surrounding them. Sometimes you'll even find a church within the castle or within the castle itself. I never want to live in a castle. They're cold, dark, gloomy. That's what Jerusalem is. And they're rejoicing in the Lord. Why? Why? I have three things to preach to you in relationship to what I discovered in my reading of Ezra and Nehemiah as a whole. We would do well as a people of God to rediscover these three things because the first one is the sovereignty of God. And that sounds like a moot point. Well, we are a doctrines of grace church. We just, if you were a witness down below um, at the Bible study, at the adult Bible study, you would have heard Seth talking about the sovereignty of God and the freedom of God's electing choice and the grace of God that is extended to some, but not all. And we rejoice in that and here we are as a church. We don't need to rediscover the sovereignty of God, right? Brothers and sisters, the foundations of churches all around us are crumbling. There are many in despair. We even know many of them. They are our friends, Christian friends, are they not? That isn't even taken into consideration the individuals in this church where they have had that family breakdown, they have had that divorce. They have dated that unsaved believer and so on, where the culture has crept in and they have been affected personally. And they are crying out, I need to rediscover God. Brothers and sisters, the first answer to that question and that reality is you must rediscover God's sovereignty in your life. Not just simply as a doctrine. Doctrine. Because knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the love of a sovereign God, even though He allows you and permits you in a period of time in your life to go through that discouragement, that pain, that depression, that despair, He has never left you. His love has always been a genuine, loving concern for you. He never gives up on you. He has even written your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. So number one, rediscover the sovereignty of God. Ezra and Nehemiah did witness it. We must remember that these are people who, like what Peter says, these are holy men moved by the Holy Spirit who wrote of God. You cannot just simply as a prophet like Nehemiah and Ezra, and Ezra was a priest, of course, write down something as just a uh, historical fact. But they're writing down the significance of what's transpiring in their life, and they are just excited about what is transpiring as they observe God moving within history. And the question is, do you get excited about when you witness it yourself? Or do you just go through life and you're somewhat unobservant about God's movements within history? I still remember it was probably the, the most, almost, and I didn't cry, but I felt like crying. Maybe some of you did. When the gay lobby won in the Supreme Court the right to be married, That didn't disturb me as much. It was somewhat expected. But when they put the rainbow lights on those lights that shined upon the White House, and that rainbow that should be a symbol of the covenant of God with His people is now a symbol of the pagan society which we now live in, my heart sank. Solomon's heart sank when his groom was from him. In the book of Solomon, the songs of Solomon. My heart sank at that moment. Maybe yours has when the culture has gripped your heart and you have seen the devastation and the carnage that is created. But if you observe the sovereignty of God, you will follow him. In that history. My faith, by the way. Ezra writes in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia. He has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem. By the way, there's no different. Governor Lamont, I don't know who your governor here is in Massachusetts, but that's like saying governor of Lamont, basically, God stirred up the heart of Governor Lamont, the governor of the state of Connecticut. And by the way, he's going to build a house for you, Todd. Right? But this is also 50,000 people strong. In Nehemiah, we see something very similar. King Artaxerxes, that's a tough one to pronounce, the king during the time of Nehemiah, said to Nehemiah, what would you request of me? So I prayed to the God of heaven. By the way, the heaven is over the earth. The earth is Christ's footstool. So I prayed to the God of heaven and the king granted them to me because the good hand of God was on me. Have you experienced the goodness of God even when turmoil is in your midst? I remember witnessing the gospel to a man who about, was about to commit suicide. Actually, a friend's son. No connection to this church at all. I remember in that despair... Because that's all there is when someone wants to kill himself. I was rejoicing in my car. I don't even know how I got home. But I was rejoicing in the fact that a sovereign God gave me the words, the desire, and the opportunity to witness the gospel to this heart of this individual young man who was about to take his life. And I was like on a cloud until I got home. I tell you that because I was rejoicing in the fact, not in the fact that someone was willing to kill themselves, but in the fact that I saw God sovereignly moving me to intervene in that moment of time and to be a consolation to a soul desperate and to preach the gospel Is this not but the gospel work in Ezra and Nehemiah that the kingdom of God would be furthered? They are rejoicing in the very fact that God is with them in this moment of history. Seventy years of captivity. God is moving right now. And they fast and pray and commit themselves to God. Isaiah even said, even before the 70 years of captivity started, he says in regards to God, God will go before them and also be their rear guard. It won't be Cyrus. It won't be Artaxerxes. It won't be the protection he gave. It won't be the governors he he uh, uh, notified in advance so the governors wouldn't slay the people on their way down to the city of Jerusalem. Everything was prepared from a human standpoint, but everything was prepared from God's standpoint. Do you see that in your life? God acting in a way that preserves you, protects you, guides you. You must rediscover the sovereignty of God. You know, its I debated whether to talk about this part of the sermon, but I'm going to talk about Donald Trump today. You know, I have seen within the church great anxiety in relationship to the, the foundations falling apart through culture and Christians looking at Donald Trump as if he's a Messiah-like person. And I only can tell you that he is far from the truth of being that. But what I do see is a sovereign God who uses a rebellious nation and gives the exact king or president that the nation deserves, and what he has decreed that we deserve. Now, whether whether you like or dislike about Donald Trump really isn't the significance. But can you see Donald Trump just as much as Barack Obama as God's choice? Do you, have you complained about, oh... Barack Obama is the worst president we've ever had, and that's just his first day installed as president. To a certain extent, sometimes we are like those who, when President Trump was first voted in, but yet he did not take office yet. Do you remember the people on the TV who were already marching in the streets who had said, not our president, not our president, my brothers and sisters, sometimes Christians do that. Maybe a real liberal progressive will get in this time. Maybe you will be Pete Butovich, a gay man. Maybe you tempted to walk out in the streets and say, not our president, not our president. You would be disagreeing with God. You would be disagreeing with God. We either believe that God is sovereign or not. We either believe and trust that God knows what he's doing or not. Let me give you some advice. Oh, by the way, I I did want to make this statement. Be careful of policy and personality and character and charisma. We must be able to distinguish between it. We actually have the moral high road to distinguish this within people when we do get to the voting booths. But at the end of the day, I I was listening to a sermon by Ravi Zacharias only about two weeks ago. And what a wise man, huh? Oof. So Ravi Zacharias said this, and I believe that every single one of us here can be unified in this one sense. When we go to the polls to vote, vote for the man or the woman who will create the most fertile ground for the gospel. That's the most important decision for you to make when you're voting for anyone. Why? Because the gospel is what really truly changes nations. It changes human hearts like kings of si- like King Cyrus and King Xerxes. God has been doing that ever since he said he would create this earth. You know, Daniel said, recognize that the Most High is sovereign over the realm of all mankind and he bestows it upon whomever he wishes. He's saying this to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who would defeat the Jews, who would ransack that city. A king who both, by the way, he gave power to destroy the nation of Israel And then also power he removed by making him eat grass, like a beast in a field. Wow. God has that much power? Yes, he does. And some of us need to rediscover it. The second category, the church must rediscover the power of corporate unity with a purpose. Ezra says in chapter 4, here Zerubbabel responds to the suggestion that the enemies of Judah could help them build a temple. We see that even today. Let us give you money from the federal government and we'll help you build your church, right? Not too far from the same thing. We see in Ezra Zerubbabel's response. You have nothing in common with us in building a house to God, but we ourselves will build together to the Lord, the God of Israel. In like manner, Nehemiah says this in chapter 4. It came about from the day, from that day on, that half of our servants in building of the wall carried on the work While half of them held spears. One for all, all for one in the church, brothers and sisters. Yes. The three musketeers have something in common with church unity. Even D'Artagnan had to recognize what the three had already been doing. We are unified in one single thought. We are for God and country, or king and country. The Christian is like the three musketeers in unity, but in a little chained sense. We are for king and kingdom. For King Jesus and the kingdom that he's building. And no one and nothing else. Or I should say that's our priority. You know, God did tell Daniel to seek the prosperity of the nation. Nothing wrong with that. But let it be a segue to the gospel to save hearts of men. Do you have a heart for unity in this church? How independent minded are you? Does it affect your relationship to the church? Does it affect your relationship to God? And you have to ask... Yourself, those questions. Are we willing to die for one another? Like the workmen in Jerusalem, are you holding a trowel or are you holding a spear? I know one thing that I have been called to do. As one of the two elders, my greatest calling is to teach the flock and to protect the flock. I know I'm supposed to hold a spear, but that doesn't prevent me from also to hold a trowel. The deacons hold trowels. But by the way, we all should hold a spear and a trowel. Build the city of God. Build the kingdom of God. Ephesians 2.20 and 21 says this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together in the dwelling of God in the Spirit. Do you see the connection? We should not be surprised that God calls us through the Apostle Paul. Individually, as believers, inside us, God has made us a temple. And corporately, he has also made us a temple. Both in the New Testament. In John 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In order for a church to be unified, we must first give up ourselves. It was literally the nation's mindset in Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah to sacrifice in order to gain the greater gain for the kingdom of God. And they did it willingly under harsh circumstances. Thirdly, the church must rediscover the precious value of the Word of God. We see that in the text. That every man, woman, and child in Nehemiah 8 went to where Ezra was standing on a podium, preaching the law of Moses that had only been recently discovered in relationship to how it would create revival within a nation. God's Word is portrayed as living, active, and sharp. It is the sword or the spear that we hold in our hands when we build the church. It is where the sovereignty of God also meets in our daily life, because the Word of God and the Spirit of God is being lived out within ourselves on a daily basis. Do you start your day with the word of God? Is God close to you? where the word of God reminds you of his sovereign will within your life? In Nehemiah and Ezra, Israel's joy is a direct result of rediscovering God's word, God's law. They did not just find the book of the law. They treasured it. They heard it from those who understood it. And then they gathered together to know it more. In the day of Manasseh, a great day of darkness, Manasseh even sacrificed his own sons. But literally two generations later, his grandson is raised by a sovereign God to become king, I think at the age of eight years old. And at that same moment, not by chance, but by the sovereign pleasure of God, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, had the high priest discovered the book of the law in the temple. And revival began. Revival is here in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's the place where joy surfaces, comes to the surface of the Christian Brothers and sisters, 87% of American households have a Bible. Over 50% don't read it. Do you have a Bible that's rarely touched in your home? Because if you do, you need to rediscover the Word of God that will bring you to a sovereign God who controls all events within this world. And He will bring a uniting power of the spirit within you to join hands within this church to praise him. Seventy years of captivity did two things to the nation. It was a captivity, but it was also an estrangement from God. And we should not see these as circumstance where the word of God is directly related to the rediscovery of God. Some here may need to mourn over that sin because they've neglected God. Others may not have to mourn at all, but go straight to rejoicing and praising. But those who mourn, I give you hope. The nation was in 70 years of darkness and they found and God found for them room for hope of praise and of joy. How happy in the Lord are you? That question is also answered by another question. How much do you treasure God and his word? Do you treasure it? Is it like a treasure that was in the field and you go home As Jesus said, and you sell all your possessions to buy it. Have you? Maybe there are some things in our culture that you still hang on to. You're unwilling to sell them. And then, therefore, because of it, the treasure of God in his book is not quite as much of a treasure as it should be. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus has a very simple way of cutting to the heart, does he not? In Nehemiah 8, all the people celebrated a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Having a book on a coffee table doesn't solve your spiritual crisis. doesn't. Reading it, knowing it, loving it, treasuring it, and trusting it, And God, who wrote it, will take you out of that crisis. Don't be confused with external happiness and inward happiness. Both can occur at the same time. But you can be in a city of rubble, in a church that has had a split, a foundation that has been destroyed, and still be happy. Because your relationship is with God and not with men. Cursed is the man who trusteth in man. And even ourselves, we trust in one another. We must. But at the end of the day, if a Christian lets you down, and I have been let down by Christians, I've been a Christian forty years. Just wait. If you've been a Christian five five if you've been a Christian for only five years, just wait it for a few more years. A Christian's gonna let you down. Will anybody agree with that? Yeah. Trust in God who has already written down for you and given you all the reasons to trust Him. In Ephesians 4. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave gifts to men for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, and to the building up of the body of Christ. Does that sound like the time of Nehemiah? The building of the kingdom of God? The building of the temple of God? The building up of the unity of the body of Christ? Remembering the sovereignty of God? Trusting in the word of God as they understood it. The joy in this house comes from the throne of God's grace. Sovereignly molding us into a royal priesthood. A holy nation. And a people after God's own possession. In Ephesians 5. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Do you know that God wants you to conquer and to be successful? In your darkest days, God wants you to abide in his word and his name and be successful as a Christian who has the spirit of God within them. All of us should recognize that. To bring glory to God. Corporate worship is the culmination of glorying in the sovereign God who causes me to dwell in this this land of, of sadness. And He brings joy to my heart when I come here. But he also brings joy with me from the worship service to catapult me into the week ahead. We could ask the question, what is God's plans in for Sovereign Grace Chapel? We know about God's sovereignty and we believe it. But we must also apply it. We must seek the unity of the body and pursue it. As if this is the very will of God for us individually and corporally. And then we must be like the Bereans. The Bereans were more noble minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Do you believe the politician who tells you this is the world the way should be? Or should you believe God who says this is the way the world is and what it should be? The church's captivity today is contemporary culture, in my opinion. We must work together to build God's kingdom. We must recognize God's rule over the nations and proclaim the gospel so that the church's walls will stand the test of time. Simple. <laughs> if it were only that simple.
1: But I do know that greater is
0: he is in me than he was in this world. Amen? I do know that God does, His only begotten Son, sits upon the throne at the right hand of the Father and is currently, right now, in history present, ruling over the nations in fulfillment of the Old Testament passages of the resurrected Christ and resurrecting power. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters? He is the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone and the capstone of the building here we sit in, but also the cornerstone and the capstone of your faith that trust in God alone. You may need to rediscover God. If you can say to yourself and say, I don't know if I could have done what Ezra and Nehemiah did. I don't know if I'd ever recover from a church split. I don't know if I'd ever recover if a, if a Christian really insulted me and slandered me and let me down. I don't know if I could ever recover. And then God brings revival through His Word. Even though it felt like captivity, the freshening air that which God breathes into our souls of the Word of God and the will of God fill us with the hope of Him. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength to live another day. Let us finish in prayer. Father, I can say one thing with certainty right now. Is that I love this church called Sovereign Grace Chapel. I love the people within it. I love the work that you have done within them. I love the purpose you have given us in the gospel to proclaim, to live And I love the hope you have given us as a church to be as the light and the lamp in a world that is just being destroyed by relativism. Lest we forget Gethsemane. Lest we forget Calvary. If we forget, we will fall and our foundations will crumble. But as we are reminded of the very sovereign God of the universe, the very same God and Father who sent His Son to the cross on that dark day is the very same God that resurrected His only begotten Son and sat Him on the throne in glory. And therefore we worship You, O Lord, in a service of praise and adoration and glory. We thank you, God, for bringing us all together in corporate worship to build your kingdom. May it be out of love for the glory of your name. Amen.